2004 to 2016, the numbers are going, attitudes are becoming more concerned as the numbers go up. And it's because people experience the local impacts and the local impacts were not being handled well in that period. Governments were too slow to deal with service pressures and so on. It doesn't mean that people didn't like Polish people or think they were doing well, but they didn't think governments had a grip. Welcome to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, is immigration too high? The Office of National Statistics announced this week that net migration has reached 606,000 people in 2022, a new record. While lower than some expectation, this figure was immediately met with demands for lower migration in future. And the government has already announced that many students will no longer be able to bring dependents, along with ongoing crackdown on asylum seekers and potentially more to come. To discuss this, this topic and broader thoughts about immigration in a free society, I'm very excited to be joined by two guests. Firstly, Sundar Katwala from the British Future. They're a group who studies public attitudes to immigration and integration with the goal of finding common ground. Uh, Sundar is also the author of a new book that's out this week, How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Country Can End Our Very British Culture War. I'm also excited to be joined by Ilya Soman. He's a law professor at George Mason University uh, in the United States and is the author of the book, Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration and Political Freedom. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. so, Sundar, let's let's set the the stage with where we're at this week. Why are these numbers at record high in the UK? I think the reason we've got record migration and net migration in the UK is two things. I think it's exceptional circumstances this year, and it's political choices that aren't exceptional in the last three years since Brexit. Um, Two hundred thousand people coming from Ukraine. To Britain in in one quarter of one year is the largest ever group of people to Britain from one country. You have to go right back to 1914 and the Belgians as the First World War broke out. See something like that. So I think I think there's probably this number's 200,000 higher than it than it would normally be. Um, 60,000 people came from Hong Kong as well, but that would that would take us down to 350,000, 400,000. And, you know, net migration has been running at a quarter of a million. So it's also going higher by policy choice. And this is um, this is what the Boris Johnson government did. They have more control um, at the end of free movement. That's one big restrictive choice. No more EU free movement. And the choices were to liberalise several things. Uh, student migration, post-study right to stay was liberalised. Non-EU immigration generally was significantly liberalised after free movement. There's been a vast increase of migration into the National Health Service. And there's some increases in migration that have been kept out of these numbers. So the number of seasonal work visas for under a year has gone up from 2,000 to 40,000. And that isn't being counted here because people go in less than a year. And um, these are the dilemmas of control. This is what control looks like. And all of those policy choices are popular um, with most people. Uh, about a quarter of people would cut some of those things. A quarter of people are sincere reducers who'd like to see immigration a lot lower. Only about 
40 to 50 percent of people these days say they'd like low immigration in britain so historically it's always been two-thirds whether immigration is high or low so the at the time when it spiked to record levels the demand for reductions has got has got more moderate and more selective and in the end the people who want to reduce immigration don't want to reduce the particular immigration we've got and so the dilemmas of control aren't just something that they worry about around the cabinet table where the chancellor likes the impact on the growth figures and the health secretary certainly doesn't want longer NHSQs and the home secretary is saying but I promise to cut the numbers you know if I can't cut anything what can I cut the dilemmas of control are very understood by the public and it's not at all clear that many people would choose reductions over the contributory migration that they like. So it does seem fascinating to me at least that we've had these kind of record high numbers and pretty much no one really has seemed to notice that there doesn't seem to be a, a revolt on the ground or you know race riots or any any kind of substantial opposition to the fact that you, you have seen kind of record high numbers of people moving to the UK. In fact, quite the opposite. People were literally opening their homes for Ukrainians. Yet at the same time, we have this kind of discourse, particularly, I suppose, within the Conservative Party and elements thereof, that these numbers are too high and need to come down. Like, I'm wondering what you make of, of all this debate. It, it's probably very much reminiscent of what you hear in, sure. in the States as well about migration. Sure. So obviously, I don't have as detailed a knowledge of British public opinion data as Cinder does, but what he said uh, led me to a couple of thoughts. One is that in many countries, including Britain, the United States, and elsewhere, the public most of it actually doesn't know how much migration there is or whether it's going up or down. So their impressions on whether there's too much migration or not often depends on uh, either xenophobic ideological predispositions or news coverage, or in many cases also a sense of whether there's a disorder at the border or not. So uh, in the last couple of years until very recently, uh, US immigration was actually very low by historic standards, but many people still were angry about the situation as they thought there was disorder at the border and they didn't actually know how much immigration there is. Uh, so public opinion on these matters and many other matters often is ignorant and uh, quite understandably, most people don't have time and don't make the effort to closely follow what is actually going on. So in that respect, it's similar to the US. What I think is different is the United States, not all of the political right, but clearly a majority of it has largely become immigration restrictionist. They not only dislike illegal immigration, but many of them would like legal immigration to also be significantly lowered. And they view migration in general with great suspicion. In the UK, by contrast, while uh, in the case of the Brexit vote in 2016, 16. I think immigration restrictions was a big part of that. Nonetheless, it seems at least to me as an outside observer that the political right in the UK is more divided over immigration than it is in this country. Uh, and the same Boris Johnson who uh, backed Brexit and uh, also wanted to end free movement with the EU also opened the door to lots of migrants from Hong Kong. Some of the other measures that Cinder mentioned and in the new conservative government with Rishi Sunak, it seems Seems like that debate uh, continues. So in Britain, to a greater extent than in the US, this seems like an issue that cuts across left-right divisions, as opposed to in this country where uh, the right has become very immigration restrictionist. The left has become more favorable to immigration than in the past, but they haven't moved as much in favor of immigration as the right has moved against it. So what I'm, I'm finding interesting, uh, Sundar, and as someone who's you know, very sympathetic to immigration, in fact, as a, an immigrant myself in this country, I'd be a hypocrite not to be. Um, 
although plenty of other immigrants uh, take a different perspective, I suppose, but um, that there is this disconnect between what the conservatives keep in promising. Obviously, there were years of promising, we'll get um, numbers into the, the tens of thousands, that that was then removed, but there was still a general commitment, even from Boris Johnson, who said, you know, overall numbers will come down. Um, on top of that, you, you do have, and an, I, I think a lot more concern in opposition to um, particularly asylum seekers arriving by boat. Um, in my home country, in Australia, this was also um, being a very big political issue. And, and what we saw quite consistently was when more people arrived by boat, the general support for migration actually went down. I do think there's likely, you know, any signs of kind of a, a backlash or turn against that, because because I think a lot of the analysis has said, well, now the UK has taken back control, immigration has become relatively less of a salient issue, and, and high numbers are okay as long as they're controlled. But are we potentially coming to the end of that kind of happy period for um, immigration in the UK? It's a very reasonable question to ask, because the history of UK migration is of great expansions and then and then changes in the rules. You know, we celebrated the fact that we had empire and commonwealth free movement. Um, and then when people came, we ended that um, from 1948 to 1971, we ended that. We went into the European Union, perhaps not knowing that free movement was part of it. And then once that, once that became uh, a very significant contribution with the enlargement uh, of the European Union, that was a massive feature of why Brexit happened. So certainly um, numbers have driven salience. And 2004 to 2016, the numbers are going, attitudes are becoming more concerned as the numbers go up. And it's because people experienced the local impacts and the local impacts were not being handled well in that period. Governments were too slow to deal with service pressures and so on. It doesn't mean that people didn't like Polish people or think they were doing well, but they didn't think governments had a grip. As numbers have continued to rise, the link's been broken. And so it's clear that people are more confident about higher migration this time. It's probably a control effect. We are selecting it. It, it is a contribution effect. People feel more positive about immigration up and down the skills level after the pandemic. The experience of the pandemic actually was seeing the real value of immigration to the NHS and in um, you know, work of people delivering packages and so on. It, the people, people just visibly imagined the contribution um, to be higher. And there's a political shift. So it's got softer, but it's still quite polarised. And you don't get the control and contribution dividend if you've got, as, as was said in the United States case, visible lack of control. And so there's a big difference between letting 150,000 Hong Kongers in and nobody noticing and 40,000 people crossing the channel and you're not sure what you can do about it. Even if you want to give refugee status to people fleeing persecution in Afghanistan, you want to know why people from Albania have come and whether they've got a claim or not. That clearly isn't well controlled. So it's clearly control contribution voice that really matter. Will we see a backlash again? Um, public opinion is quite well informed about this. Obviously, people don't know what the level is and did they ever care about the net migration level. People know it's gone up. Um, some of the most liberal people now want increases because they think it's cut. So graduate liberal left-wing opinion think it's gone down because um, um, free movement has ended. And of course, there are some sectors of the economy that can't get migrant workers they used to want to get in hotels. But the public know it's gone up. Um, and then this, this broken promises issue is important. I mean, for nine years, the Conservatives tried and failed to cut immigration, and they couldn't meet that promise while we had European Union free movement, and there were various political constraints, and there were real trade-offs about the economy and so on. They didn't face those constraints after 2019, and they chose to increase it. And so Boris Johnson's mistake, he, he ditched 
Theresa May's target, which was the tens of thousands. And he said, I'm a controller, I'm a selector, I'd pick what I want. And at the very last minute, on the eve of the election, he added something in to say, but the overall numbers will drop. And it was never his policy, and he never believed it. And he had policies that were defensible. The Prime Minister at the time, Boris Johnson, he believed in controls more important than reduce. And the British public believed if you control and you select, we'll, we'll take what we select. And, he, and then he said, but the numbers will fall when he was liberalising immigration for the universities, the NHS. So it was, a, it was a failure of confidence in himself, in the public, in the, in the idea that he could sell the argument he was having. And he probably had more um, appetite for that. But the Conservative vote is now split. As you say, there's more split in the elite right. The Conservative vote is split between um, uh, six out of ten Conservatives in this country would like the numbers to be cut but only a third of Conservatives would actually cut something to do it. Um, whereas the Labour vote now, two thirds of it just wouldn't cut it anyway. Um, and then the people who would cut it, you know, not the NHS and not the universities. And so, we, you know, we'd be looking at a very narrow thing. So it used to be 10 years before Brexit, it was that the left was very split by the graduate left and the non-graduate left having different views and experiences. It's now the right that's split between votes that Rishi Sunak risks losing to an Nigel Farage successor party and votes Rishi Sunak risks losing to maybe a centrist party like the Liberal Democrats if he, if he responds by the Home Secretary being very, very noisy about small votes and also not doing it for the people who are tough, but also sounding too tough for the people who are soft. I suppose the reason why, you know, the immigrant immigration hasn't come down uh, in the UK, or for that matter, um, as substantially as some people might like in the US is because, um, quite frankly, you know, we need immigrants and people want to migrate, you know, as um, your own experience demonstrates. Uh, I was wondering if we could have some thoughts on the, the general, you know, case for immigration. Sure. Uh, so both the US and the UK, particularly in recent years, but even before, have significant labor shortages and problems in many sectors, which immigration can help alleviate both high skill as with the British NHS and our medical system, uh, and also uh, lower skill uh, as well. Uh, and people have many uh, contradictory attitudes on that. So if you uh, ask people about specific sectors where it seems like there are shortages and you tell them there are shortages, uh, they might say, yes, I want to have more doctors or more construction workers, wherever it is that they think there's a shortage. But they might also at the same time be very suspicious of migration generally or worry about disorder at the border. Uh, just a couple brief comments and much of what Cinder said made great sense. Uh, but I would quibble a little bit with two uh, issues. First, if it really is the case that the British public now has a good grasp of how much immigration there is and what kinds of immigrants, that would be a new thing, I think, in the entire history of polling data, not only in Britain, but other countries as well. Maybe they do. I haven't seen the most recent polling data. Cinder knows more, but it would be surprising if that were really the case. There is a long history of the public in the US, the UK, and virtually every other country that we have data for, uh, not knowing how many immigrants there are, whether it's increasing or going down, or rather they tend to be thinking that it's going up even when it isn't actually going up. And they also tend to think that immigrants are a much higher proportion of the population uh, than they actually are. Second, while I think local impacts probably do make a difference in some cases, there is striking polling data both in the US and in the UK, especially in the UK around Brexit, uh, that the areas on average most hostile to immigration are actually those that have relatively few immigrants. Uh, and so that I think conflicts with a narrative that 
where the problem is sort of local impacts. Uh, and you see that internationally as well in the European Union, uh, one of the most anti-immigration countries in terms of governments they elect is Hungary, which actually has very few immigrants there, less than 3% of the population or something like that, compared to 13 or 14% in the US. I forget the figure for Britain, but I think it's closer to the US than uh, to Hungary. So. Uh, in many, many cases, the actual number of immigrants on the ground, uh, even if people do know it or even if people see them, uh, has relatively less impact than uh, more deep-seated attitudes. How suspicious are you of foreigners? How much do you think the world is a zero-sum game where, for instance, if foreigners come in and take jobs, is that a loss to native-born Americans or to native-born Britons, or is that actually a gain? The more xenophobic you are, the more you have a sort of zero-sum worldview the more you will tend to be suspicious, uh, even if you don't know much about uh, how many immigrants there actually are. And even perhaps if you live in a part of Britain or a part of the United States where uh, there are very few immigrants and therefore uh, you, you, don't, you don't have at least a direct way to think, well, an immigrant is going to come to take my job or he's going to come to use my local welfare services or something like that. Still, uh, in places like that, you get xenophobia, whereas in places like London, which uh, has the most immigrants of any area in Britain, uh, the, the, the population one is actually much more sympathetic to immigration on average than that in more rural areas of Britain where immigrants are uh, much less common. Those caveats are all, are all absolutely correct. I mean, basically, what we can say is that people are saying just wait till they notice have missed the point that people do think it's gone up, not down. People don't have a great grasp of what the number is and so on. Of course, this counterintuitive finding about less, less, less anxiety where there's more immigration is obviously a contact effect. So that's broadly true most of the time. It's especially true in the long term. I think 2004, 2006, it was about the pace of change in the places of the fastest change, especially if the change was new to those places. And then the, the other places that are more worried, and Hungary to Western Europe is a good analogy for this, um, it's more of a worry 15 miles down the road than where it takes place. And it's a great deal of worry out on the coast, uh, 50 miles or 100 miles away, because there we, in both cases, we've got visibility, either you know in the nearby city or on the news of something we don't have contact with. Whereas in the long term, you get the contact, you get more contact from a young age. So there's no doubt at all that 10 million migrants, people born abroad in Britain, a sixth of the population, that is having these positive contact effects in the long term, even though people might have a pressures of change concern in the short term. What, what I want to do, and it's what I talk about in my book, um, How to Be a Patriot, I don't just want to ask the, are they good for us question and find out they are good for us and manage the pressure as well. I want to I want to push very hard the people become us and are seen to become us because we have good contact. We see the acquisition of citizenship and identity. The children of migrants and the children of the British born are the same group, not a them and us group. That is how you get long-term confidence. Handling pressures well and knowing why people came is, is good in the time of change. But fundamentally, I think you have to be a country that's confident in your ability to do it. And here, Britain in the long run is quite good at this. America historically is very good at this some of the time. Canada is often very good at this, but is more polarised. I think in some West European societies that are quite like Britain, there's just a bit less confidence about that. And if integration and identity isn't going well, I think the economic uh, arguments become slightly second order.
So Ilya, I'm interested in your thoughts on that as well. I mean, I think Douglas Murray is the one who makes an argument to say, you know, you can't really have immigrants if you're not confident in and patriotic about your own culture and uh, your own people. Um, and, and you know, he, he kind of then links that to the discourse about, you know, woke self-hatred of, of the West. Um, on the other hand, though, if, you know, it does seem like the US and Britain have been relatively, and Australia, um, you know, New Zealand, Canada, um, in particular, been quite successful in integrating immigrants, perhaps, somewhere like France and Germany who have kind of a stronger sense of their own um, identity being kind of almost race-based or or kind of historic-based, struggle a little bit more with immigration, although maybe that's a bit of a generalisation. How do you think about these kind of cultural issues that often are cited as a reason why you can't have immigrants? Yeah, I think it's complicated in that on the one hand, Cinder is right that a nation which is confident that their values are appealing and that therefore immigrants that come will accept them, uh, will have less anxiety about immigration. On the other hand, there is a little bit of a trade-off in that, as uh, you, Matthew, suggested a moment ago, when you have countries where there is a nationalist sense that you know our identity is about a very thick and very specific culture, and the only people who are true Frenchmen or true Germans or true Hungarians or what have you are people who fit into that culture in a very thick way. They practice the right religion. They have the exact right cultural norms and so forth. Then that kind of country will make assimilation and acceptance more difficult. And it will easy, it's easier to stir up nationalist sentiment uh, to oppose immigration. Uh, so if you look at the data in the US and Canada, I think some in Britain as well, actually assimilation of immigrants proceeds apace. Uh, I'm an immigrant myself and the challenge I face and many immigrants in the US is not that our kids you know, will not assimilate to American culture or whatnot, but rather like it's very hard for me to get my kids to learn the Russian language, my native language, but I'm not, I've not been very successful at that. That's a common problem among immigrants. And I think it's actually a good thing if people can speak more than one language. I want that for the kids because I think it'll benefit them, not because I love Vladimir Putin or your Russian politics. I certainly don't, but having a second language is a good thing, but it's very hard to keep in place. And that's a common experience uh, with immigrants in the U.S., Canada, and Britain as well. Uh, But it's also the case that uh, if you have an identity as in the U.S. and to some extent in Canada, Britain is a more complicated case where the identity focuses on a set of principles, liberal values, democracy, liberty, justice, and so forth, racial and ethnic equality. I think assimilation is easier than when the sense of national identity is more about a distinct ethnic group, uh, a particular uh, language, religion, and so forth, though it's certainly the case that, you know, some countries like France and Germany that have had problems, they've also assimilated a lot of uh, immigrants as well. Uh, So uh, I think in that respect, uh, I think some confidence among the natives is desirable and could be useful in uh, creating openness to immigrants, but it's also the case that the wrong kind of ethnic nationalism is the traditional source of hostility uh, to migration. And of course, the worst combination is a situation where uh, the native-born population or much of it feels on the one hand that they're committed to a very thick uh, and not very tolerant identity, but they also feel insecure about the staying power of that identity. So they feel that it's going to be swept away. That may be the situation situation in a place like Hungary or among some French nationalists and, and other 
uh, countries that we can talk about. I think it's no accident that in Canada, well, opinion in Canada is much general, generally more pro-migration than in either the US uh, or in Britain, and they actually accept more immigrants per capita than either of our countries do. But the one place in Canada where there's a lot of relative hostility towards immigration is the province of Quebec, where you also have a lot of cultural mm -hmm. nationalism and great anxiety about what they fear as the potential erosion uh, of uh, you know, French language and culture in North America, where you have the 6 million French speakers surrounded by you know, 350 or 360 million English speakers. So uh, there's a disjunction between Quebec and the rest of Canada in that respect, I think that's not an accident. And you see some similar patterns in Europe as well. So Sundar, I know you've just said, ultimately, you know, attitudes to immigration will be determined by the kind of cultural sense. But it seems to me that one of the most persuasive arguments against having particularly large immigration numbers to the UK is you can't have the mixture of very large number of immigrants, but very few numbers of houses being built. The result of that is going to be what we experience um, quite a lot, particularly as young people in, in major cities, which is extremely high rental costs. Now, the obvious solution there is, well, in that case, let's build some more houses, but it doesn't seem to be politically possible, at least at the moment in the UK, to some extent. I wonder how you do with those concerns, as well as, I suppose, the more pressures on public services, the, the questions about, you know, um, welfare and, and social services. I think I think liberals, economic liberals, cultural liberals, political liberals are, are successful on immigration when they don't say oh, you're worried, but it's actually net positive. So don't be worried. Just know it's positive. Much more successful when we say we agree there are pressures and gains. And if we handle pressures well, we can keep gains and keep confidence in gains and so on. In Britain, we've seen um, public anxiety about lots of the pressures um, soften a great deal around the health service has gone from people being more worried about you know the pressure on services to being seeing it just a net positive because they're now more aware of the contribution on the staffing side schools went from being worried to just thinking it works fine but housing is the real one of course housing is a real pressure and there are two things to do about housing firstly do build some houses you know you can say it's only half of the housing pressure migration well that means it is half of the housing pressures that's quite a big half um um build houses of course it's also the distribution of the economy and the distribution of the population really really matters because you know scotland would like to grow its population um it'd be good for liverpool to recover population having had a higher population in the past but the place that is doing very well economically you know feels population pressures and congestion pressures is all happening within the m25 around london so i think you need to build houses but you also need to work on the distribution of the economy going going well because if you're going to you're going to grow the population you'd be better off growing it more evenly um, than than just in london and the southeast so i think those are those are real pressures i think rising numbers make it easier to drop the ball, but rising numbers are not decisive if you don't drop the ball. So you want people to know why things that were chosen were chosen. You want them to feel that government is on the case about service pressures and housing. And then you get to work on the positive story about integration and contact. You do all of those things and you will maintain consent with high numbers. You drop the ball on either housing and public services or on 
you know, do people become us? How is our community going? Then you will see more political polarization. And this, you know, attitudes are much softer these days. It's still polarized by generation and by politics. And so we should we should work to broaden the geography, broaden the politics, broaden the social groups that see the benefits of immigration. I was wondering the other criticism you have to get is this, uh, I suppose, almost lump labor fallacy issue where there's this idea that immigrants come in and take jobs from locals or um, in fact reduce local um, wages even Boris despite ironically being uh, overseeing a, a very liberal immigration policy I seem to recollect in his last conference speech that he made as conservative party leader he made this argument that well the reason why wages are increasing at the moment is because we've turned off the tap of free migration from Europe of course it turns out wages weren't actually going up it was just early signs of inflation but but I, I was wondering what you make of those that kind of a debate Sure. What, so I suspect that Boris Johnson, like many politicians, said things that he probably knew were not true for the purpose of appealing to public opinion that was ignorant about various issues. In a narrow sense, it is surely true that at least in some cases, immigrants do compete with labor for natives. It can't be the case that they never do. However, there's a couple of important points that should be remembered on that. Uh, one is that even if immigrants are competing with me for jobs, it's actually in the academic world they are because uh, the academic world in the US at least is one of the most open to migration. Still, I benefit in all of the situations where immigrants compete for jobs with the people that I buy things from. Uh, and therefore, uh, even if uh, I'm hurt in this direct way on that, I can be benefiting as a dynamic economy with a lot of competition as more economic growth, more innovation, immigrants disproportionately contribute to various innovation and so forth. Uh, secondly, immigrants in the U.S. and I think also in Britain as well are more likely to establish businesses uh, than uh, natives are, and that obviously provides employment opportunities for natives as well as for other immigrants. And third, uh, as you alluded to when you mentioned the lump of labor fallacy, uh, it is not the case that there is a fixed number of jobs, uh, and, there, and that therefore that if you know if an immigrant gets one, that's one less for natives. In a growing economy, uh, there can be increases in a number of jobs and improvements in their type and quality. Uh, finally, on this point, there's a lot of research which suggests that although there certainly is some labor competition, it's also the case that new immigrants often occupy different market niches uh, from most natives because they often have different types of skills. The intuitive example that I think conveys this is if, if you look uh, at, for instance, the restaurant business, at least in the US, recent immigrants who may not yet speak English as well, they're more likely to take jobs that don't require English fluency, like, you know, say being a cook who the customers rarely talk to or see. On the other hand, natives or immigrants who have been here longer are more likely to take jobs as waiters or managers of restaurants where language skills are important. Uh, and therefore, uh, each group can actually create more job, opportunity, job opportunities for the others. If there are more cooks and people who work in the back room, that creates more job opportunities for waiters and vice versa. So there's uh, that aspect as well. I do want to briefly comment on the issue of housing because I'm a property professor and write extensively about that. 
both in the US and in Britain, there are very serious problems in many areas where essentially regulations of various kinds make it difficult or impossible to build new housing in response to demand. That makes life more difficult for immigrants and natives. But even if we had little or no immigration, this would still be a serious problem because among other things, it blocks native-born Americans and native-born Britons from moving to places where there would be more opportunity, uh, better quality of education and the like. Uh, so this is a problem that needs to be attacked directly uh, by reducing those regulations in several states in the US and in some places in Canada. Efforts have been made along those lines. Liz Truss, who's uh, obviously her tenure as prime minister didn't go very well, but I think she was on the right track when she put forward proposals to in fact uh, do this in Britain. For whatever reason, Rishi Sunak seemed to be less interested in this issue, but I think this is going to be a problem for Britain. You need to address it and you will need to do so even if you have relatively little immigration because it's a serious problem uh, even for native-born Britons uh, as well. Uh, so uh, let people move around freely and also let other people build new housing on their property uh, in response to that extra demand. And then property owners can benefit and also migrants can benefit both domestic and international migrants. And the rest of society can also benefit enormously because data shows that if we allow people to move to opportunity, they become much more productive. And that benefits not just them, but also the rest of society as well. Uh, if we had dropped our more onerous zoning restrictions in the US that we've had over the last several decades, economists estimate the GDP in the United States might be 30, 40% higher or even more than it actually is. Uh, and I think there's a similar story, although I don't know the exact numbers for Britain. Uh, so this is an issue where there's a synergy, though I do have a little bit of skepticism as to whether public opinion recognizes the connection. Uh, and it's not clear to me that housing is really a major factor about set sentiment towards immigration. Uh, I think much of the public here is elsewhere doesn't really understand the connection, uh, but there is a connection. And from the standpoint of improving policy, it should be addressed. And if housing prices go down, the public might notice that at least, uh, and a government that succeeds in lowering housing prices might become more popular over time as a result. Sunja, so, picking up on a point you made earlier, which was about, well, if only the UK could, um, I suppose, grow more evenly in terms of population distribution. It seems like in my mind, at least, so one of the biggest barriers to opportunity is, is not, you know, foreign immigrants necessarily coming in, but the lack of ability to move across, around the UK to where there are opportunities. Um, and that, in fact, if anything, you, you want counterintuitively, actually, if you want UK to be prosperous, you need more housing around London, you need more housing around Birmingham, you need more housing around Manchester, let people move to those areas where they could be most productive. And then other parts of the country can kind of specialise and localise rather than having quite weak local labour markets all over the place because people can't necessarily live where they want to live. Um, and it's kind of a domestic migration question, but probably more important in some ways than even the international one because it involves so many more people. I think I think politics of that issue has, has changed. I think over over a generation. I think I think social mobility and geographic mobility does does have an appeal to graduates. You know who tend to be mobile to study and so on. But the the idea that you know more geographic mobility will be will be good for more people in places that are doing weaker economically. I think that goes down quite badly, and that's why I think the leveling up agenda is a is a serious agenda that's that's important. So I think I think we've got to think about what is the what is the political economy of 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 broader growth 
in more places rather than saying, you know, ambitious people in Sunderland would, you know, will find opportunity in the southeast, but you know, there isn't going to be the same level of opportunity in Sunderland. Is is not going to appeal to people who've got a sense of identity, pride, and connection. Wouldn't think that was fair, but also that wouldn't be that 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 would create, I think, congestion pressures, population pressures, housing pressures in the southeast. Um, you know, if you're if you're the Scottish government, yeah, the population of England went up ten million over 30, 40 years, the population of Scotland stayed steady uh, above 5 million and didn't fall because they were able to get immigration. Although a lot of people coming to the UK and the Scottish government wants to get its fair share of the Hong Kongers who come, of the graduates who come. They want them to study there and stay there. So they've got a job to, to market that. I think it's true of um, you know English cities, English regions, Wales as well. And so I think I think we need to have good strategies for growth in more places rather than saying facilitating more growth in the places that are doing best is 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 just where the market's going to go and this is you know, it's challenging i think for you know uh, your groups like the iea which would obviously have a lot of faith in the market i think can, can we have a market-based political economy that, that that thinks about geography as well i think there's a big demand for that on the right and the left of politics these days and of course your book uh free to move kind of very much focuses in on this idea of voting i was wondering if you could take us through that kind of thesis sure so people can vote with their feet both internationally with international migration that we talked about but also domestically and moving from one part of the u.s to another or one part of britain to another to get job opportunity to get better public policies that they like more to get better education and so on and of course housing deregulation can facilitate that because we can then enable people uh, to move more easily and to afford the housing. Uh, it is not actually the case historically that voting with your feet is only the college grads or should like to the country. Historically, it's the poor and the disadvantaged who have benefited the most from it. Uh, that's how America, Canada, Australia, and so forth uh, were settled. That's how within Britain you had migration of many relatively poor people from the countryside to London and other cities uh, during the Industrial Revolution at other times. Uh, uh, zoning restrictions and housing constraints uh, and regulations have made that more difficult in recent times so we can recapture some of that by loosening those constraints. I know, as Cinder mentioned, that the Tory government in Britain has talked about leveling up and having more even development of sort of regions which are not doing as well economically. Maybe they can achieve that, but I'm somewhat skeptical. And in the entire history of the U.S., Britain, Germany, France, other countries where there's different regions with different issues. Almost always there's been uneven economic growth. There have been some regions which have done better than others. And the idea that we're going to you know, get it anywhere close to you, I think, is very unlikely. Uh, what we can hope for is to empower more people to vote with their feet. And if political power is decentralized uh, and local governments have control over various policies, those that are losing population and therefore also losing tax revenue can have incentives to improve their policies. This is something else I talk about in my book. It is also discussed actually in a book put out by IEA a few years ago by uh, Philip Booth called uh, Federal Britain, where Booth argues, and I wrote a brief forward to this book, uh, Booth argues that Britain, which is actually one of the more centralized nations in the West, could be decentralized and there could be more ability of local or regional governments to raise their own revenue and therefore to have incentives to compete with each other. He weighs out various proposals 
for how that can be done. Uh, so I think uh, regions that lose people therefore have at least some incentive to improve, but I'm skeptical that in a large diverse society uh, that we can ever achieve anything even remotely close to even wealth or even growth. I think throughout economic history, there's always been regional disparities and enabling people to vote with their feet is a better and more realistic way to address the resulting problems than to try to eliminate the disparity uh, um, in a direct way, which I think policies to try to do that rarely succeed, except perhaps when, say, under communism, they spread universal poverty or universal oppression, or whatever, then you can achieve more regional equality. But I think that is really not worth the price. Mm -hmm. uh, Sundar, I might, I might come at you for some final thoughts, though, on this, this, I suppose, very broad question is, you know, what would be an, an ideal kind of immigration system for you? Are you kind of satisfied with what UK now has, some humanitarian immigration, um, a kind of skilled-based system uh, that, you know, points-based as, as often talked about, you know, some kind of cap on numbers, you know, what, how, how would you like to see our immigration system structured? I think we've got a great deal of political um, elite and public consensus on the kind of immigration system for work and study that we've got. We've also just got the surprise that the numbers, the choices we want to make, add up to more than we thought. And of course, people have always exaggerated the scale of the flows they're worried about. And then if you say, well, 600,000 students, people say, well, I don't, don't mind how high that number is and so on. So people are, that, that's macro numbers versus choices, but there's a lot of consent. You want to strengthen that, you give people more voice, you put more political accountability in how those choices get made. We hear, hear from the people who are worried about houses. We hear from the people who are worried about labour shortages. And you, you try and just amplify the fact that actually most people do think about the trade-offs if they if they have to confront them more than the politicians think. Um, but then we haven't got anything like a working asylum system when we have this heated and polarised debate where the government is making impossible promises about deterrence and control and deportations that it's never going to meet. And, and we have a real control versus compassion clash about asylum. And we need to say what is an orderly controlled, managed, humane asylum system where Britain plays its part. So that, that's the really difficult job for the next government because the current reforms, the current legislation, effectively are saying you can't ever claim asylum on the island of Britain if you weren't given permission to come here and nobody has got permission to come here except some Ukrainians and Hong Kongers. We've then, we've then opted out of our international obligations. We're going to have to rebuild and repair our commitment and we, we can appeal to our history we can appeal to the softening of attitudes and so on but that's the bit to sort out i think i think it's odd if employers sound a bit sometimes like they're saying the only problem with immigration in britain is there isn't nearly enough of it when it's at record levels there are lots of people coming on family routes on graduate routes as hong kongers and ukrainians they've got the right to work so i think employers could now think about the employment rates of the people who are coming and what we can do to get them close to work and so on and and pay more attention to the pressures but i think we've got i think we can have a consensus on the choices we get to make with a system of controls where we could have a controlled openness in britain we've got to fix an asylum system to go with it though and would you, would you go for controlled openness or would you uh go full kind of open limitless borders or or some other kind of i don't know price-based buy visas system that's sometimes talked about as well in free market circles 
I think controlled openness, while it sounds good, is ultimately a contradiction in terms. By definition, if the government gets to exclude people almost any time it wants, it's not true openness. It's immigration gets to live on the sufferance of who's ever in power, whether it's the conservatives or labor or the Democrats or Republicans. So what I would ultimately like to achieve, and I recognize it's not going to be achieved anytime soon, is to replace the current system that we have in most countries, where there's a presumption that immigrants are only able to enter if the government gives them permission, uh, and the government has to have some special reason that they decide to give them permission, whether it's humanitarian or economic, with a system where the presumption is the opposite, that as with domestic freedom of movement, the presumption is that people get to move where they want, live where they want, work where they want, and government can only reject that if they have some very compelling reason for excluding the particular person and the burden would be on them to show, say, that, you know, this person is a spy or uh, that they're planning to commit a crime or an act of terrorism or something of that sort. Uh, and uh, obviously, I fully recognize, I already mentioned that it's not going to be achieved anytime soon, but that would be ideal. Uh, I do have sort of two general points about how to proceed in that direction. One is that uh, we need sort of uh, over time a shift in our moral attitudes, uh, which occurred with respect to a lot of other groups that we previously felt justified in excluding or oppressing, say, based on race, gender, sexual orientation, and the like. Ultimately, most of us, not all, but most realize, for instance, that there's not a fundamental difference between being Black and being white, for example, and that therefore it was wrong to keep white people in slavery. It was also wrong to keep Blacks in slavery. Similarly, we recognize that the feudal system was wrong because under that feudal system, if you're the son of a lord, you could move around freely, but if you were the son of a serf, uh, you could not. And we also realized that just because the serf chose the wrong parents, that was not a good reason for restricting their mobility. And of course, immigration restrictions work much the same way. We restrict people's rights based on where they were born or who their parents are. So it's not entirely dissimilar from serfdom or from racial segregation. And over time, uh, I think perhaps more people can come to realize that as we have realized in a case of race, aristocracy and serfdom and other examples like this. Uh, in the immediate term, however, I think it is also the case that uh, a lot of uh, hostility immigration, not all by any means, but a lot, results from this sudden sense of disorder at the border, the southern border for the U.S., maybe the crossing of the English Channel in the case of Britain. Uh, and uh, the way to sort of address that actually, ironically, is to make legal migration easier. There would be fewer people trying to swim across the Rio Grande River and avoid the Baber, uh, and evade the border patrol if it was relatively easy to show it up at an official checkpoint fill out a form and come in. Uh, indeed, many people might not even want to cross the southern border at all if they could cross simply by uh, um, you know, flying in a plane or coming on a ship or the, or the way you know, people normally engage in legal transportation. And the same thing with people in boats crossing the English Channel. There would be less of that if legal migration were easier. Uh, so uh, I think that's a, a useful short-term measure. Uh, and uh, there are other, you know, short-term adjustments and improvements that can be made depending on uh, the politics of the moment. But I think in the long run, we need an adjustment in our moral attitudes similar to the one that we previously underwent with respect to race, 
gender, ethnicity, and in an earlier era with the rejection of the feudal system in favor of the idea that maybe you should be able to live and work freely where you want, even if your, your father was in fact a serf uh, or was not a noble. And I think uh, the modern analogy of feudalism where uh, we have a system where some people, those who are lucky enough to be born in the West, they can to a large extent at least live where they want, and other people, those born in poor and oppressed nations, can only move where they want if uh, we uh, and our governments choose to let them uh, out of our largesse. I think that way of thinking uh, over time hopefully can be diminished. Well, on that note about the ever-expanding moral uh, circle, thank you so much, uh, both Ilya and Sundar, for, for joining the IA podcast. Um, uh, Sundar, who's from British Future, who has a new book out, How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Country Can End Our Very British Culture War, as well as Ilya Sovin from George Mason University, who has a book, Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and political freedom. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast writer. And if you'd like to learn more about the IEA and uh, read our research, including that um, uh, study by Philip Booth from a few years ago about decentralizing the UK, um, uh, as well as some previous studies we've done on, on migration, please do visit iea.org.uk.